Hello and welcome to the third ever English Network podcast. Uh, it's me, Ted Seeley. I'm Emily Cott. And I'm Alex Barton. And you join us today, we are looking at My Last Duchess by Robert Browning. And we're going to be taking you in the usual journey through language analysis. Looking briefly um, at form and structure. Oh, I'm back with a vengeance. We'll uh, talk about structure and form as much as we want. Excellent. Uh, and just exploring the poem, raising the questions and helping you with your revision and analysis of said poem. Um, so, I'm just going to quickly give us a little reminder of what My Last Duchess is about. And guys, if I get this wrong at any point, please feel free to correct me, as I'm sure you will do with yep, Wanting Abandon. Um, so we have the story of a duke who is from Italy, who is uh, ha- has a visitor, who at the start, we don't know who they are, who has explained to them about his last duchess and how she behaved and how that wasn't entirely to his uh, satisfaction. Uh, and the, the actions he took and how he began to exert a little bit more control over her, uh, but how she continued to make him angry. And then he kind of kind of just tapers off there uh, and asks the, the man who turns out as an ambassador, representing the father of someone who he is about to marry. Um, and he, he goes off, briefly talking about Neptune's statue. And it's, it's quite a strange poem with a lot of hidden meanings and a lot of hintings and subterfuge and things of that nature. Is, is that about right? Yeah. yeah, I'd yeah. say one important thing to note really is that the, the conversation between the envoy or the ambassador and the duke takes place in front of the portrait of the duchess. And I think we were just talking before about how when you read this poem on the page, the duchess is almost lost. But what's important to remember is due to the form of the dramatic monologue, if this were to be performed, you would see that duchess staring right through him, through every single line. And I think as we talk about the poem today, it's quite interesting to think, you know, if that duchess, if the picture of her is there and so present... How does that alter our interpretation? Wonderful. Right. Uh, which leads us nicely on. So we're just going to start with our, our kind of thoughts about today's poem and, and, and our particular interpretations, what we like about it, and how we think it's relevant. So, uh, Al, no, you can't talk about romanticism. So what can you tell us about? I can poem? talk about romanticism. Oh, about I romanticism. knew he's chewing on it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, this, this poem's really interesting mainly because of the... Um, I mean, the point you just made about the, the Duchess and her implied presence is really interesting, but the speaker himself is a really interesting character, um, kind of like a maniacal <laughs> a maniacal character who's, um, yeah, just kind of like interesting to, to, to read. Um, but also we see this idea of power, the theme of power, represented in relationships. Um, and I can talk a little bit about post-romantic um, influences, <laughs> yeah. So um, again, with and I'll and I'll go into this a little bit, a little bit deep more detail later. But it's that, it's our kind of like modern view of um, relationships as a result of um, romanticism, and Browning kind of starts to explore those ideas as well. That that, that was that was quite succinct. Well, well done, uh, M. Um, I love teaching this poem, especially recently. I think it's it's a great poem in terms of the anthology. It's a poem about power and it's a poem about conflict. Whereas Al focuses mainly on the power, the power of relationships, the power of this Duke. I think maybe it's more about conflict, the conflict between who the Duke wants to be, how he wants to present himself, especially somebody trying to almost sell himself to, and the conflict between that and who, and who he really is, you know, what his emotions are deep down. And I think pick, peeling back that facade of the character is really interesting when you study this poem. Uh, that's what I kind of like. And I think pupils nowadays, you know, Ted, you were talking about uh, the idea of the podcast serial, this obsession with sort of murder mystery and examining a criminal's psyche. And I think when you address the poem in that sort of way, I think it's a really interesting one to teach. So I'm looking forward to the podcast. Indeed. Uh, and for me, I think I think I really, really do love this poem. And part of the reason I love it is that I think any any poem that engages with the idea of love, I think is always particularly fruitful. I think this is like an area where, where poetry really finds its 
perhaps it's it's kind of its greatest worth. So you think um, it's a love poem? It's not that. It's not that I think. Well, any poem that prompts you to think upon love, I think you can argue is a love poem. I think there would be feminists who would who would call for my my name, my, my head, if I called it a love poem. But uh, I, th- I think it provokes a lot of thought on, on what is love and the relationship with power and control. And I think, as as with any poem or story that looks at an, an antihero or or a villain, it prompts questions about the monster that might lie within us as well. Mm. And you know, you don't necessarily need to have sympathy for this duke, but I think certainly empathy on his actions are have motives, motives that we can relate to, in a sense uh, that anyone in a relationship I think has, if not necessarily felt, then flirted on the edges of perhaps feeling. Em's looking at me with worry there. I don't know. Oh, well, I don't know what you're admitting to here, Ted, but we'll find out. We, sure. we, we will. It will be a journey for all of us. Right. Uh, so, um, Em, would you like to start us off with your analysis, please? Okay. So, looking at the title, first of all, and if we, if we assume the title is the first line of the poem almost, you can see the poem starts with the idea of my, and the last line of the poem ends with that word, me. I think it's really important to look at the cyclical nature of that egotistical character who's sort of obsessed through the possessive pronouns with himself she is only known through her relationship to him um i think that word last obviously quite interesting as well is he casting her away mm-hmm. is he giving her the significance she deserves and obviously if we look at, at her name as a duchess that is synonymous with her being related to a duke it's yeah. the whole um importance of her title comes through him so I think the use of possessive pronouns throughout the whole poem, me, my, I, all the way through, I think you can count the tally of them, there's, there's so many, and I think it just shows how he's so egotistical, self-obsessed, and he's viewing her and their relationship through his own sort of opinions of it. Mm, I like that, and I like the idea that he almost, by referring to her as a duchess, he, he denies her an identity as well. Absolutely. Not only does she not have that voice, but not that identity as well. Uh, and yeah, I think just structure, right? Something sometimes something we find quite confusing, but the very deliberate tone that he opens with with those personal pronouns and ends on, on as, as well. I think is a really simple but important point to, to yeah. explore. Yeah. Al. Um, yeah, and I think it's fair to say as well he's narcissistic, isn't he? He's, an, he's a, mm-hmm. he is definitely a narcissist. That's a really good term to apply to the speaker. Um, I was going to talk about when when you approach these these poems and you want to try, kind of access the much like much higher grade um, or higher marks. It's a good a good idea is to talk about um, is to is to apply a different kind of philosophical slant on it that maybe maybe even the the poet um, themselves wasn't necessarily going for um, but actually does express in the way that they in the way that the, that the poem develops and the one that I've looked at here which um, is kind of almost self evident if you if you think about it is this idea of objectification um, so the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Was smoothly pronounced. That. <laughs> Thank you. Um, splits splits objectification. So we have a kind of like simple object idea of objectification, which is you you treat somebody as an object, not as a kind of human being with with that kind of like inherent worth. But it can be split further into into seven different types, and so and these with these seven different aspects, we can kind of identify in the in the Duke's um, treatment of of the of the Duchess um, as he describes it. So. It can be split into en- instrumentality, which is the treatment of a person as a tool for the objectifier's purposes, denial of autonomy, so treating them as if they lack self-determination, inertness, which means lacking agency or activity, um, fungibility, which kind of means um, that you're interchangeable, you treat somebody as interchangeable, violability, which is um, violating boundaries, any form of assault, ownership, which is kind of self-explanatory, uh, and then denial of subjectivity, 
So the treatment of a person whose experiences and feelings, if any, need not be taken into account. Um, so when we look at this first, this very first line, that's my last duchess painted on the wall, um, we start to see how the, how the Duke views his relationship um, with his wife or his, his former wife, his last, his last duchess. Um, and we start to see this idea of um, objectification. So he, he treats her as an object. Well, he sees her now as a, as a, as a literal object, um, something that, that he owns. So it's that first point of ownership. Now, as it goes through, we start to see that he also, um, and I might save this for later as we go, as we, as we go throughout the poem, but we start to see that he, he treated her as, um, as kind of like, he denied her subjectivity. Um, he, we, we, he basically um, admits to violating her in the most kind of extreme way in terms of having, a, having her killed. Um, and then this idea of fungibility, which I think is a really interesting idea, that he sees her as something that can be re- easily replaced. Yeah. And that's what's happening now. He's, he's said, right, I've, I've got rid of this one. I'm ready for the next one. Um, and it, again, it's just that complete den- denial of that person's um, kind of like human, human worth. And yeah, essence, exactly. Yeah. Um, only for the, this kind of like narcissistic, his own, his own narcissistic um, idea of what it should be. I think in terms of understanding the poem and linking it with the more modern context as well. Uh, so the most popular YouTube series of this year so far has been uh, Shane Dawson's looking at uh, Jake Paul whether or not he's a sociopath yeah, yeah. and there's an episode looking at what makes a sociopath yeah. and there's a really interesting moment where it's talking about it's possible 1 in 25 people or 1 in 20 is a sociopath and yeah. how sociopaths yeah. are often extremely successful because of that ability to objectify other people to not feel their emotions and to, to yeah, use yeah. them as yeah. instruments yeah. to further their own ends mm-hmm. so I think again my argument would be that makes him if not a likeable character then certainly uh, one that we can understand in the modern context yeah relatable. definitely I think it was quite interesting you talk about that, that idea of uh, the inherent worth that she has the Duchess just as being mm-hmm. a, a human being and mm-hmm. I think I'd question that I think the way he treats her her worth was only what she ever provided for him and the whole criticism of her is that she didn't appreciate him enough she didn't provide for him enough it was not her husband's presence only called that spot of joy so I think the way he even speaks of her and Mm -hmm. and their relationship is purely what she gave to him Um, and he almost dismisses what he gave to her Love, I don't know. Yeah, and, not. yeah. And, and, that, and that's what denial of subjectivity is defined as. It's this idea of um, treating someone as if their experiences and their feelings need not to be taken into account. And you talk about like a narcissist, like this guy clearly is. That's exactly what we're looking at here. He's um, he's only he only values her for what kind of um, what she can do for him. Yeah, that's what you just said. Yeah. She's she's just an instrument of his pleasure. Um, so that leads us on to the quotation. Uh, so he's kind of he stood before the frame and he says this curtain I have drawn for you so the idea that around the frame there's this curtain that he's revealed and this is just a really interesting moment to stop and consider so we've got this idea of a curtain and clearly it's a metaphor but what does it represent well one possible interpretation is that he's you know he's letting this 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 you know envoy this ambassador into his world he's kind of there's a subtext here of the envoy clearly gets what's going on and what's happened to the wife, so he's, he's lifting that, that veil of, of ignorance and letting them know what's happening. But we've also got the idea that perhaps actually the, the, sh- the, the shroud that's now covering the picture, the frame, is what he always wanted. He wanted mm-hmm. to keep her away from the world mm-hmm. like a bird in a cage just yeah. for himself yeah. so, he, so he can choose when to show her and when not to show her. Yeah, And then there's... The you know there's I mean you know, Browning's an artist when it comes to irony. There's the irony here that he thinks he's in control of the curtain. He thinks he's choosing what to reveal. But of course, as we go through the poem, we mm. see that he reveals perhaps more than he intended to. Yeah. And I think that 
that Kurt is perhaps again foreshadowing, going back to what we were talking about in the prelude, foreshadowing that he perhaps loses control of the curtain at points here and reveals more yeah. than he intends to. Um, and then just just going going on from that, um, so he's kind of he's, he's very much monologuing. And one of the things I really like about this poem again, to reveal the nerd within me, is it's got that kind of villainous James Bond, Lex Luthor, Batman versus Superman esque, <laughs> uh, just kind of like a, a villain who's monologuing and saying. Initially, they've kind of got a very clear point on what they're saying, and then yeah. eventually they, they lose, they fall into that reverie, that stream of consciousness, and yeah. they lose control over what they're saying. Um, but there's just a really nice moment when he, I think, shows himself to be quite a, a self-indulgent, dramatic character. Uh, and he's, he's, he's kind of, he's going on, I forget what line it's on, but he goes on to say, how shall I say? And this is, this, yeah, this rhetorical question is quite interesting because the envoy hasn't spoken for about five minutes. You know, this, this duke's just been rambling on. And he's saying, how shall I say? Now, he's, there's a few different things here. Is he having a dramatic pause because he's enjoying the, the dramatic storytelling and he's and enjoying... the attention he's inevitably getting there. Mm-hmm. Or is it that actually he's going, he's actually being aware that, oh, I am actually perhaps revealing more than I intend to. Mm-hmm. And he pauses to choose his words very carefully because, of yeah. course, he has more than likely murdered someone. So mm-hmm. he does have to think yeah. about how he's going to say it. And then again, the fact there's a rhetorical question at this moment, I think, emphasises the lack of participation from anyone else and that he is just you know just this egotistical narcissist going on and how shall i say the the idea he's choosing his words links back to what you were talking about that very deliberate facade and veneer that he's trying to portray but is that that all those asides isn't it how shall i say um and the pauses the sejour throughout to, Mm -hmm. to suggest that it is very conversational it's quite fluid it he's just speaking to him as his ideas come to him whereas what we really see is that a lot of this is pre prepared Mm -hmm. a lot of this is very carefully measured very carefully controlled or at least he thinks that and i think Mm -hmm. that's the huge irony isn't he He thinks he can control the duchess by putting her behind Mm -hmm. a curtain but she is now controlling him the the memory of her is controlling him he thinks he can present himself in a certain way but actually you know, he's exposing more than he, he likes about his own character. And I thought, I Who's think... he really presenting? He, he thinks he's sort of using the poem to criticise the Duchess and her behaviour, but in trying to expose her, he only really exposes himself, doesn't he? So yeah, I think that's the yeah. irony in the poem. And that, I think that's what Brennan was a master of that in, in, in so much of his poetry, was that dramatic monologues were a great way, because this one character is speaking so much, yeah. of revealing their psychological makeup and their tics mm-hmm. and their quirks mm-hmm. and it's often that when we feel our most relaxed and we feel we're most in control that we reveal the most about ourselves because well, we're almost unguarded yeah and, and i think it's just interesting to talk about the the juxtaposition here um and again using that subject using those subject terms when you're analyzing these poems there's a clear juxtaposition that browning's used to kind of um, get this irony across between the the duke's voice and the actions which he's describing so it, it, the speaker's voice is actually um very diplomatic in terms of the of the language which he's using and again that very measured approach almost stopping himself and mm-hmm. thinking and stopping and thinking um and yet what he's describing is a very brutal act so the juxtaposition between um the civilized and the diplomatic to the the violent and the brutal mm-hmm. um i think that's just a good a good point to put in when you're talking about um how does how does browning um express that irony Mm. Absolutely. Do you not think that makes the character himself a lot more sinister? Definitely. Um, I know when I teach Macbeth, I talk a lot about the fact that before each murder, Macbeth will use a rhyming couplet. 
it's only a composed and measured and calculated killer that would, you know, use yeah. that perfect rhyming couplet before a murder. And I think yeah. we see some of that in the Duke with the iambic pentameter. The idea that he's so composed on the surface, I think, makes his character a lot yeah. more sinister. But exactly what you were just saying about these these um, superhero films, the bad guys, <laughs> they're not grunts, are they? They're like they're masterminds. So yeah. they need to have a, they need to have that kind of um, sophistication yeah. to what they're to what they're saying. Um, and what are giving the, the Duke a lot of credit here? Well, well, this is the thing, and this is what I said at the start in terms of you know. I think he's is an interesting character. We we need we can't deny that just because he's a <laughs> villainous and you know kind of heinous in some regard doesn't mean we don't quite frankly enjoy what he's saying. I think well, that's we've what all been there, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, we have all murdered our duchesses. Um, but one of the things I like in this poem as well is is the you know the jumbled quality of the language. You talked about the Cesora and the use of dashes. How he at moments he's almost stumbling over his own language and he keeps on kind of adding in little, little caveats yeah. and. For me, that's almost the idea of that. I think there's room for interpretation here. Why is he doing that? Is it that he is self-editing and he's like, "Oh, I'm revealing too much," or is it that there's some kind of inner turmoil and inner conflict, mm-hmm. and he's got various things he wants to say? He wants to show off the painting. He wants to brag about the fact he's murdered his wife and got away with it, or perhaps he is feeling emotional in this moment and still feels that resentment and anger, mm-hmm. and is still, you know, wants to wants to actually just get this off his chest. How upset she made him. And we see that with the rhetorical questions as well. You know, the first rhetorical question we've got, how shall I say? A very considered, very, you know, contrived rhetorical question. But later on he's talking about, you know, how could she rank my gift with anybody's gift? Um, you know, who, 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 would, who would, you know, you know, how could she behave like this? How could she do this? These are much more naturalistic. These are genuine emotional yeah. questions he's asking. And he starts by controlling and asking these questions to control the conversation. But then by the end, well, why are you asking these questions? Yeah, but yeah, I think you're right. But also, I don't think, I, I think more than, and I'm kind of contradicting what I said before about him being this kind of mastermind character. I think with what, what you just said, I'm starting to picture him more as kind of like a, a naive and petulant child. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. why, why isn't the world why exactly I as I wanted? It, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, it's that, so again, either way, I don't think there's yeah. any redemption to be found for the Duke. But, yeah, I but, think... but it's not that I'm looking for redemption, but this frustration he feels at his inability to control her behaviour, and he's asking these rhetorical questions, you know, uh, but who passed without much the same smile? He's angry that other people are making her smile. But just stop to consider that. That's frustration, right? Mm. The lack of control you have over other people's behaviour, despite your status, that's frustration. But that's what love is. Yeah, yeah. Love is, means you're vulnerable, means you let go of control, means that you have to sacrifice that someone who you have no control over determines your happiness. And that's something you just can't accept and at that moment I think we see the real Duke monster or not I think there was an emotional stake here for him I don't know that's just my interpretation uh, on that I think what you've got to remember as well is is the context of this conversation he is trying to sell himself to the envoy who's going to go back and deliver the news of the dowry to his next suitor Mm -hmm. and I think it's it's almost He's trying to excuse his behaviour, he's trying to explain his behaviour, he's trying to address any rumours before they come up. That's sort of, you know, anticipating what people could say Mm. against him and trying to accuse the Duchess rather than accept any culpability for his actions. Yeah. I think your, your your interpretation of the Duke is quite generous, Ted, but well, I like it. I think, you know, there's uh, one of my favourite quotations is the biggest lies we tell are the lies we tell ourselves, right? So he might be explaining away his actions because of his jealousy. Mm-hmm. But I think if he felt jealous and if he felt this need to control, what I'm saying here is that hints at a vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's where all of this is coming from. And his status, his pomposity, his narcissism, which all come from his background... I mean he's unable to deal with that vulnerability that 
perhaps love or certainly a feeling of affection or perhaps just lust lead him to. Mm-hmm. Do you think he loved her as a person or do you think he loved what she gave him in terms of something else to brag about, another well, material possession? Well, I, I think on that, I think that's why I think this is a good poem for exploring the idea of love and that even people in perfectly healthy relationships can get those two things confused. Do you love how the person makes you feel? Do you love the person? Do you love the experience that person provides you? And even perfectly healthy relationships, I think, can sometimes have an imbalance of power. Mm. Yeah. And that, that's, I think, part of the problem is here is that he has too much power in this relationship or he has too much power in the world and he can't deal with not having power in that relationship. Mm. I mean, yeah, let's think about it. He is a duke. Yeah. Someone with um, a position on social hierarchy, looking at the setting of the Italian Renaissance period, he's clearly been brought up, mm. like you say, um, to believe that generational wealth is worth something and yeah. that title, that gift of a 900-year-old name. Um, not that we could excuse his behaviour because of that, but we're talking about a different context and mm. what potentially he saw that a woman could ever give to him was potentially not equality. Yeah. And we can't just blame the Duke for that. Yeah, um, and I just think on that, it's just important to kind of like... We said before about the context of the poem and... Um, what we were just talking about, what you guys were just talking about, then I think was really interesting and insight into into the kind of themes around mm-hmm. when you talk about contemporary views of um, of relationships. Um, but it is important not to get too bogged down in the t- in the context, but just to talk about what was happening here and where this poem is, is um, supposed to be set. Mm-hmm. Um, society, which was uh, again very hierarchical, and when and when at this point we're looking at um, in terms of marriage and marriage contracts and arranged marriages. Um, you could look at this at, this is a slightly different point but just kind of again to get that romantic slant on it which is, which is <laughs> vital resist. Resist. Yeah, so um, when we, we talk about uh, romanticism our, our understanding of what, ro- of what uh, relationships should be and what they should look like um, they are, they are found, they're founded in kind of like mutual appreciation um, and people are expected to to marry or yeah to marry for love and not mm-hmm. for no other reason if we looked at kind of like a what what this what's being negotiated here is very much a, a marriage of convenience it's yeah. a, it's a, an extension of um, politics yeah, yeah exactly exactly um and i think as browning is writing in this post romantic era um he's he's looking you could argue that his readers and and certainly modern readers today We'll look at marriage as something that should never be arranged for convenience. It should always be a kind of an affair of the heart, and mm-hmm. and to see to see this arranged marriage fail so spectacularly, as in one person ends up dead. Yeah. Um, you could look at that as kind of like a, an influence of romanticism on um, on our well, our and the, ours as in contemporary like um, readers today and readers in when browning was was uh, was when he wrote the poem so almost as like a damning indictment of that 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 form of relationships it's like kind of that's that's yeah, where it will lead yeah. if you don't exactly yeah yeah because yeah. we, we we see because just going back to the other ones that we looked at we've seen in ozymandias and we've seen in prelude that there's a there's a hint of warning there's yeah. a hint of warning and i think you can apply a similar um idea here there's a hint of um that well, more than a hint i guess that that marriages like this and relationships like this they're, they're bound to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really, really nice, Sam. That leads us on uh, quite naturally uh, onto Emma's next point. Yeah, so I just want to look a bit at the semantic field of sort of hierarchy that we've got, um, especially towards the middle of the poem. We've got the use of the ranked, stoop, and lessened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just found it quite interesting his obsession with position and his obsession with her being a, a belonging to him, but also being below him. 
he chooses never to stoop. And I think, Ted, you'll come on and explore that in more detail. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I'm just... so sympathetic towards this monster, <laughs> which is a point I'm going to have to clarify at some point in this podcast, I think. <laughs> I just want to look at that, that double meaning of, of lessened, you know. He wanted to bring her down a peg or two, as it were, because she dared to challenge him. She dared to accept cherries off some other man. She mm-hmm. dared to question his position. She dared not to um, appreciate his gift of a 900-years-old name. And I think that use of lesson is loaded, isn't it? You know, does it mean he taught her a lesson? Or does it mean he, he brought her down mm-hmm. in terms of where she thought? And I think he feels, doesn't he, that he gave her that title, the Duchess, and she didn't appreciate it. Um, and you've got that those references to men who he sees as far beneath them, you know, men wandering around yeah. in the orchard. An um, officious fool. Yeah, <laughs> the officious fool, the people that, how dare she not give me the worth that I deserve due yeah. to my title. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and I, th- I think that's, that's really, I think, for me, my interpretation of the Duke and his actions, right? I think Al's initial, so going back to our initial point, he has definitely sociopathic tendencies, or is at the very least, you know, an egotistical narcissist. And, you know, this, this language, this quotation, you know, I choose not to stoop. He sees the act of love itself as below his station. Mm. I choose not to stoop. He chooses not to do the things that love requires. What does love require? It requires you to make yourself vulnerable to someone, mm. to treat them as an equal, massive problem for a narcissist, to put someone before yourself, so not even as an equal, but to put them above you, to consider them first and foremost in all things. Mm-hmm. Like these are all the, you know, you talked about romanticism. These are the romantic ideas yeah, of, of love and what they require. Yeah. He chooses not to do this. He chooses not to do it. It's not for him. He can't give up his social status, his kind of the fact that he always puts himself first. He is an Italian male living in the Renaissance in the aristocracy. He loves himself. Yep. He's been raised in that world, and that's completely natural for him. So he can't commit himself to that that kind of... Um, I keep saying this phrase, that vulnerability of love. It's just he can't do it. And that explains all his behaviour. Yes, he's a monster. Yes, he's this awful individual. Yes, he murders his wife. But that's why. It's this idea that he cannot make that leap. Yeah. He, can't, he can't make himself vulnerable. He can't. He just loves himself too much. Or he, but you know, I think, he chooses not to. He, he chooses that I choose not to. Yeah. But okay, so th- that's an interesting point, right? I yeah. choose not to is the yeah. idea that perhaps he could, but ultimately he he kind of picks himself. And by the way, I think it's important to to note that his his view of stooping as yeah. in as in lowering self would simply be just communication. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you talk about like talk about what that modern expectations in relationships like communication is key. Always yeah. communication is everything. And he sees communication, which he describes as um, kind of like plainly set her wits to yours. Um, and then say maybe that like this this and you disgust me or here or there you exceed the mark. And um, that's basically just saying um, he's he's explaining there that would me, be me talking to my wife and, sa- and saying that I'm not pleased about certain aspects of your behaviour. I choose not to speak but, to but, but his, his choice is to say, well, I'd never do that. I'd never stoop to that level. And I think that's just quite telling about his, his view of, um, of relationships in general. 100%. But yeah, I think this is, I mean, for me, this is a bit of a bugbear, but I think it's important that when we look at historical figures, we always bear the historical context in mind. Yeah. And we don't, that does not excuse yeah. the behaviour. It doesn't justify the behaviour. But it's, it's important for you to understand why people make the actions they do. Mm-hmm. And also, what are we expecting of the Duchess? You know, was she this, this feminist before her time almost, expecting so much of him, expecting mm-hmm. this equality? And then mm-hmm. when she didn't get it, she ran off with anyone who would give her that attention. Mm-hmm, yeah. I think almost are we awarding her with, with too much of a personality almost when we're looking at, you know, he couldn't give her the relationship she wanted. We're yeah. almost anticipating she would have wanted that, whereas yeah. actually 
if you marry a duke in the Italian Renaissance period, what are you almost expecting? Oh, you know, yeah. that, but, that but, she's, but she's supposed to be kind of like loosely based on um, Lucrezia de Borgia, so who is kind of like embroiled in scandal apparently all the way through her life. So mm. uh, we, we talk about the, we can talk about the Duchess as the character that she's supposed to be um, representing, but also I think it's more it's probably more useful to talk about her in the abstract in yeah. terms of what women what was expected of women at that time and and how um, yeah how how the Duchess the Duchess. The abstract duchess was was behaving in that in that in that marriage. So we are supposed that's the idea, isn't it? We're supposed to, especially for you know a Victorian audience, yeah, we're yeah. supposed to judge the duchess here. We're supposed to see her. Obviously, we wouldn't judge the, the spot of joy, her blushing, guys. How dare she even blush at another or man's smile attention? Smile at another man. Exactly, but then there is obviously you know that there's the insinuation that he she cheated. You know she committed adultery. Well, I, I'm I'm always torn torn with this. It's it's no secret that the the the, 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 you know, the lack of the mention of the Duchess in my analysis is a problem. But I think my view of this poem is that we never see her, hear from her. All we have is the definition of an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Yeah. So I I never feel even analysing this poem in a strong enough position to really conjecture about her what she did. All I know is 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 the Duke. And that's where a lot of my. And you analysis... know the Duke. I feel like I really don't know the Duke. <laughs> well, that that's the thing. And just one thing, like in your analysis, when I read, most responses when they look at this poem offer a very prosaic, facile analysis of the the Duke. He's a monster, and he is a monster. And I can't emphasize that enough. <laughs> but this is a, this is a character study. This is a dramatic monologue. You yeah. need to understand the character. It's not enough to just say yeah. he's a monster. Why is he? What are his motivations? What are his choices or lack thereof? You need to show you understand the character who's at the heart of this this dramatic monologue. And don't forget, as much as we love talking about poems, you've got an exam to write. So there's a kind of utilitarian aspect there that you do need to be able to. It's really it really is in your interest to understand it in lots of different ways, not just the kind of obvious. Those interpretations. So you don't have to just agree with my uh, obsession with the Duke, apparently. (laughs) Um, and we're at, so we're really getting towards the end of the poem now and I think Em's just got us a line uh, we're going to look at relating to Neptune yeah. Lord of the Oceans I sort of alluded to this when I talked about the, the first line of the poem linking to the last line but I found it really interesting how he ends the poem he attempts to regain that composure which I almost do think he's lost he's realised yeah. he, you know, his sentence has become a lot um, more rambly that's not a word is it I think I'm rambly here <laughs> but his sentence is ramble on a little yeah, he, he's, um, he's lost himself in that reverie he's almost he's lost himself he's forgotten where he is he's, absolutely. he's, he's caught monologuing as we say in yeah, yeah, yeah. he's yeah. caught monologuing that's <laughs> yeah, what yeah. I wanted to say you see um, but instead you know you've got that Volta where as if alive will it please you rise when he asks that question he tries to regain that composure assert mm. his authority over the situation and the envoy and, and he changes the position and I found that really interesting he takes him then away mm, yeah, from the yeah. duchess and if we yeah. remember the duchess staring from behind her portrait that whole time he wants him to move now and it's that rhetorical question well it's an imperative isn't it posed yeah, as a rhetorical yeah. question you know we're going to move now oh and by the way on your way out please just notice my lovely statue just, just before you talk about the statue I was just going to say that there's an interesting way in, in terms of his, his syntax and the way he starts speaking when he regains that control um, he, he, speak, he says um, the count your master's no munificence is ample warrant uh, that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed it becomes a, it seems a lot more poetic and a lot more yeah. musical in the way yeah. that he, and he seems to be um, kind of suddenly snapped out of that stream of consciousness and, and, trying, to, and trying to yeah there you go uh, trying to <laughs> trying to get back regain control um, and then again the language goes back to that kind of very diplomatic your yeah, count's no munificence yeah. it's very it's full of praise and is mm. kind of um, trying to again sell himself but 
So, Ted, you mentioned that he starts with this air of composure and control and he, he attempts to regain that at the end. Um, we'll please you rise and then he tries to move uh, the envoy away from the painting mm-hmm. and he says oh you know notice that statue on your way notice neptune though taming a seahorse thought or rarity which class of innsbruck cast in bronze for me and i think really we see going back to al's point on fungibility there the idea that he values the duchess as a painting as a work of art yeah and he's on to his next work of art this mm-hmm. statue yeah. from a famous sculptor he valued his last duchess to whatever degree, and we've debated that, mm-hmm. and now he's on to his next, and yeah. he wants the envoy to go home and discuss the diary, and, you know, he's in that arrangement of the next marital contract. Um, and I just find it really interesting he chooses to end the poem with this reference, this allusion to Neptune, obviously the Roman god of the seas, um, obviously, you know, symbol of power, uh, power over everything, um, control and the fact that he's taming a seahorse and I find that image really interesting to end on the idea that Neptune is a god you know of course he can tame a seahorse just like of course the duke should have been able to tame the duchess of yeah. course a man of that era would have had control and authority over his wife and mm-hmm. I think actually it's almost has he been justifying his actions to himself yeah mm. And then is that his last sort of glimpse? Is that what he sees as power? It's almost yeah. an empty side of power, you know. Yeah. Of course he would have had control over the Duchess. Mm. Yeah. And it's not that impressive then. I and think that that's herb, really... that verb taming is really quite loaded, isn't it? Yeah. It's that kind of like treating someone as an animal. It's something that can be like you're taking something that, that's wild and, and something that's free um, and just kind of crushing it, crushing its soul basically and, and keeping it as something that just purely for, for your amusement. And that sums up the poem, doesn't it? Yeah. That's what he did yeah. to her. He tamed yeah. her. He didn't want her yeah. going out... And she has, if, we, if we do the direct comparison, she's the seahorse thought of rarity. Like there are other pieces of rarity. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea of what the seahorse was uh, to Neptune is kind of like um, it was this kind of like powerful. Uh, it, it connotes power. Absolutely. Um, and then that, that last, you know, he's got that reference class of Innsbruck again. He's bragging. I think yeah. the, the references to the two artists we didn't really touch on Frau mm-hmm. Pandorf, did we? But yeah. obviously, yeah, the original the artist, yeah. the original artist who painted her, he accuses her, him of having an affair, even though he was a monk. You know, yeah, we actually yeah. have these sort of Delusional. empty, yeah, these empty accusations almost. And I find, you know, he's obsessed with the material wealth that these the statue or the painting will bring him. And that last line of the poem with that exclamation mark, it's almost like. Yeah. He's a parody of himself at this yeah, point. Like, yeah. Casting Bronze, for me, you know, yeah. I'm the important one. And I, I like the way he chooses to end the poem here as well in terms of the structure. So, you know, he's kind of, he feels he's back in control. He thinks he's snapped out of this reverie. And he kind of thinks he's not revealing anything more about himself. But as we've just said, the fact he then goes on to harp on about these objects, he's still revealing what a kind of narcissist he is and how he's reduced and kind of chaptered his wife's story and her tragic end yeah. to another object. Oh, that's just a part of my life that's done with now. Yeah. He's still, even now, he's ironically still revealing about himself, even though he feels he's Absolutely. back in control. Mm. Uh, and so that uh, concludes our analysis of the poem today. So we just thought we'd introduce some questions, uh, final questions, final thoughts for us in the poem today. Uh, just to really kind of look at the big picture and get thinking a little bit deeper, if, if that's possible about the poem so Al uh, take us off please uh, yeah I have a question aimed for both of you really um, talking about the the fact that it's a dramatic monologue and we only have one speaker and, and mm-hmm. the, the other presence the other two presences really we've got the, the ambassador but also the, the duchess they're both implied rather than explicitly stated um, I just wondered if we could talk about the, the duchess and her role in, in this poem because she, it's about her but we don't it's not it's not obvious kind of like the kind of power that she holds so I just ask about that, really. 
Um, well, I'll just bury myself first with uh, <laughs> more criticism now. Um, I think, f- for me, I don't necessarily know... Because I don't look at the Duchess too much as a character, I look more at what she represents. So there are several lines... Her absence is very significant, right? But there are several lines where we never hear what's done to her, but we, mm. we kind of see what's implied, what's done. So when you look at the line, the Duke goes, I give commands, and you know, no one says hi to her anymore, and that kind of powerful language he says I, th- I gave commands and she died but I think you've almost got this idea of like that that represents in one line so much of what happened to women in this period the complete subjugation the complete control kind of the stuck in the domestic sphere no room for freedom no voice the fact she has no voice and she has been turned into an object you know that's um, yeah, I think feminists could critique that interpretation but the fact she's been turned into an object I think is a metaphor for the successful you know, objectification of women in this period, the fact they weren't given a voice, they weren't given control. So I don't look at the Duchess so much as a character, as kind of a metaphor for, for the treatment of, of women in this period, and to a certain extent for the, the dangers of the, the controlling aspect of, of, of love, and that men at that time were able to turn the negative emotions of love very easily into real life power and control mm. um, so yeah I mean not so much as a character but more what she represents and more the treatment of her what that might signify at the time yeah, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so the question I have for you guys here, to what extent do you think this poem and the Duke could be presented as a critique of masculinity and in particular the relationship between love of relationships and, and, and that yeah that masculine identity yeah I think that's uh, I mean if it's not if it's not explicit, it's definitely implicit in this poem. I think this kind of um, what's called toxic masculinity. I yeah. think in modern in um, the kind of like the way that we describe it today, um, that's shown through the, through the Duke. So it's pure control, yeah. um, and no, definitely not um, a kind of equal partnership. Mm-hmm. But a, a, a her again. That's this idea of objectification. Her being a well, a, an object of his amusement. A tool for for whatever purposes he wants to to an instrument kind of for pleasure. Well, yeah, that too. Um, so all of those, I think it's just that that idea. And then you, you may, I'm just thinking of um, there was an there was an advert on TV recently where all in the last few years where it's <laughs> recent. It, yeah, <laughs> it's not that recent. Uh, it might still be on. I don't know. Um, but it's it's a it's a it's a um, like two it's like a young couple like teenagers and um, the 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 boy it's a boy and a girl and the boy's being really kind of like aggressive and angry mm-hmm. towards her and like trying yeah. to grab a phone oh, off her that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. and yet he, he and yet he's kind of watching the behavior from behind the from screen the window, and trying yeah. to stop himself yeah. and that kind of thing um so it's an expression of that kind of masculinity i think mm-hmm. saying uh, it's rooted in jealousy it's rooted in what you're saying a kind of um a emotionally immature approach to love where you yeah. feel that where you feel that you, you know you have to have complete control over the person who who you you ostensibly love um and yeah I think that's that's really clear in this poem, and it's and it's taken to the extreme, which is murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that it's that toxic reaction, isn't it, to a woman who damaged his pride, she damaged yeah. his ego, and yeah. yeah. um, whether she didn't love him enough, or you know she did commit adultery, whatever, you know, she damaged him in a way. Yeah, and humiliated him. He Absolutely. he saw himself as being yeah. humiliated because of the fact that she was she was kind of quite um, affectionate with other men. Um, he you know that to him that was the the worst affront that mm-hmm. she could. That she, that she could have really and then him bragging here you know she did this and, and he doesn't hold back and say you know she, she cheated on me she gave other men mm. her attention but I stopped that and I think it's, it's that idea that due to this 
view of masculinity. He, he saw violence as the only option there to, to assert exert, his yeah. authority on the situation. Trying to get back some control. Yeah. When I do this with my classes sometimes, uh, it's quite a depressing note to end on, or for me to mention here, but this idea that yeah, most violent crimes and violent, you know, violent murders could be committed by men. Yep. Furthermore, it's often committed by men on people in their family or people yeah. who they're close to. And for me, this poem really kind of, it, it strikes a chord on that issue and that problem, in that there's something about the kind of the, the masculine concept of power and control that clashes with the, the intimacy and the fragility of love. Yeah. That often, you know, they're almost not capable of love. Mm. They can't deal with those emotions. And that's not to forgive. Again, it's to understand. And it leads to those violent crimes, those shocking incidents. You know, yeah, yeah. It's quite a sad note to, to think about but for me. And this poem always makes me think, I can't remember the Caroline Duffy poem. Um, but it's from the, the perspective of this man who's, mur- what's the name? This man's murdered his uh, his wife, and it ends in the last line. That's so embarrassing um, that none of us know it. I know. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hurt a fly. And this, this, these two poems have always linked up in my mind. That idea of kind of claiming to love something that you've you've hurt. Yeah. Uh, human yeah. interest. Human interest. That's it. This idea of claiming to love something you've murdered. Obviously, that makes no sense, and yet some people claim to hold those. And that's it. That's it. That and, cognitive and he, dissonance. He, he, I think that that's the way that he talks about himself and his own actions, and, mm-hmm. and it, he's still very much justifying yeah, it. Yeah, he, like, he is. He I, is I the mean, victim. I had, to, I had to do this because uh, my the alternative yeah, was uh, she, speaking you, to her. She got what she deserved in the end. That's why he sees it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, last question, then. What have we got my for us? Final question. This Brain really teaser. does well, not so much. It draws it right back to to why we are here. You know, this is a poem on the GCSE specification from the Power and Conflict anthology. I think it's often a poem people shy away from discussing. I don't think it has as many links to other poems as some of the other obvious pairings in the anthology. Um, So I'd just leave you on the question, where is the power in this poem and what is the conflict? Um, I think with this poem, I think you could tie this in if you're quite clever with it, with identity and how this, uh, you know, the character, the Duke here identifies himself. So he, linking it to power. Yeah, in terms of he doesn't have power over the situation. Like the extreme emotions he experiences mm-hmm. have power over him. Mm-hmm. His lack of kind of an identity which he can control and who is he identifies himself with power and status. When those things are taken away from him, he feels he feels lost. He resorts to violence and kind of like you know negative actions to try and bring that back. Yeah. Um, and I think if you link it with identity, obviously there are lots of poems that touch on that. Um, I don't know. I'm, so the conflict between the identity is trying to present to others and what yeah, actually yeah. holds beneath that the facade. I'd have to think about that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I was just going. I was just going to talk about the. Um, just just thought about something you said before about the fact that when you were talking about her power from beyond the grave, almost the power that she holds over him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the and we spoke earlier about irony, but we're talking about links um, between poems. That's really a really clear link to Ozymandias. So we talked about yeah. the fact that the, the statue. Um, despite the fact that he's bragging that his works, you know, and, and he had he kind of like had that statue built and that um, the the plaque at the, at the at the foot of the statue saying "Look on my works, you mighty in despair." Um, he had that made in the certainty that his works or the, like his perceived certainty that they they would last forever, yeah. um, and yet the speaker, the reader, um, the, the traveller can all see that it was that it's like hopeless and broken and destroyed. Yeah. Um, and again, and it, and it's the and it's that lack, it's that loss. It's almost like I'm just trying to kind of work out how to, to word it. it. It's the transition from an extremely powerful position, which both the Duke and Ozymandias had, um, to the point where they, well, trans- um, 
the transition from there to a point where they are kind of like outwardly bragging about yeah. power which they've long since yeah. lost so Ozymandias lost his power it's gone um, it's, there's, nothing, there's nothing left but the, the broken statue and the Duke despite the fact that he had this power this control over the conversation this control over his marriage he's lost that as well yeah. um, lost it not only in the moment where he's forgotten how to well he's forgotten his, um, the situation that he's in and how he needs to measure his speech but also lost it in terms of his own his own self-control um, and the, the, the power that this just looking at this picture seems to, to, to have on him mm-hmm. so the power that, that his last Duchess has so that that kind of illusion of power, I think, will be a really interesting uh, comparison to make if it if it does come up on the, on the uh, exam. I was just thinking on that. Like, realistically, the deeper an understanding you have of a poem, you can compare almost any of the poems yeah. in the anthology. It just depends on how deep your understanding is. Whether or not this poem can look at identity, your relationships, you could talk about nature, human nature. You could try and tear that together. It you can make any comparison work as long yeah. as you've got a deep enough understanding of the poems yeah. which hopefully we've provided which hopefully yeah. we've provided and that, I think that neatly wraps everything up for today so thank you if you've made it through this entire lengthy but wonderful podcast uh, we thank you very much for joining us and good luck with your future English revision right bye bye English nerds